Please, God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Faith is difficult in our day, and part of the difficulty comes from language. And Episcopalians tend toward a particular kind of language nerdery. If I were to greet someone new, a visitor walking through our big red doors on Del Mar, and they asked where the restroom was, I could say conceivably, well, that's easy. Just make your way from this narthex, past the font, through the nave. When you get to the chancel steps, genuflect if you'd like, then turn right, pass through the other narthex, and you're there. If you get lost, ask an acolyte or the crucifer. (laughs) Why use a common word like church or entryway or altar server when Old English and Latin are at your fingertips? We Episcopalians have to be very careful about insider language. We have a great deal of it. It's easy to get sucked in. But the difficulties of language don't stop with the strange ephemera of our denomination. And today we don't agree on basic terminology. Last week I preached and I rejected the narrow definition of pro-life, what it has come to mean in our politics. What was surprising to me was that no one threw tomatoes. I was ready last week for some strong pushback, for letters, for angry tweets. I got a little bit of pushback, but what surprised me was how much the sermon was reshared, watched online, how many folks were hungry to hear words I'd spent so many years avoiding saying. Many Christians want to redefine the debate, want to let go of the old meanings. How do we define the words of faith? How we define the words of faith matters. We don't often take time to define words in church. We think of their meaning as self-evident. We use shorthand. That's dangerous. I can tell you, a church must be explicit at times. Explicit, for example, that we include LGBTQ plus people. Words like welcoming are not enough. Many churches call themselves welcoming but they don't welcome LGBTQ folk. Our dismantling racism leaders, for another example, our dismantling racism leaders at Holy Communion in recent days, they've been talking about how differently white folks and black folks hear the word diversity. What do we mean by the term? Heck, across this country, we don't even agree what the word Christian means. Language can be very tricky. And language can be very important. Today, Jesus picks on a particular word, a particular term, an important term to redefine. That word is peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I give to you not as the world gives. Jesus' words this morning come from his farewell discourse. After the Last Supper, Jesus sits the disciples down to give a final teaching, promising them the Holy Spirit. He prays that they will be one, and Jesus says, My peace I leave with you. I give you not as the world gives. In this passage, I have a particularly easy time putting myself in the role of a disciple, because Jesus speaks to one of my deepest longings. Peace, he promises. I can be a bit of an anxious person. Many of us can. 
These are anxious days. Peace, Jesus promises. I long for that peace. Ronald Rollheiser, the Catholic theologian, reminds us longing itself can be holy. Longing drives us beyond ourselves. But longing can also be dangerous. St. Augustine warned that sin was disordered love, or we might say, disordered longing. Sigmund Freud talked about the fire without focus that burns at the center of our lives. Disordered longing can drive us mad, but longing properly focused, longing properly focused can drive us beyond ourselves, can drive us into the arms of another. Longing can drive us to the transcendent, to God. And Jesus wants to focus his followers' longing. He wants to give them peace, but for their sake and for honesty's sake, he must redefine the term. Jesus must reorient his followers, give them new direction. Jesus does not give peace as the world gives peace. Jesus' peace is not the world's peace. When Jesus promises this gift, it may be different than what the disciples first imagined. This morning I want to try to define the peace of Jesus, the peace our Savior promised. Christ's own peace, not given like the world's. This peace, I would argue, is one of the central teachings of Jesus. It is the truest object of Christian longing. Our former presiding bishop was fond of retranslating the word peace that Jesus used. She always used the Hebrew, shalom a fuller sense of that peace when you say shalom. I would argue living a Christian life means longing for, working for, building God's shalom. I want to talk about two traditional paths, interrelated and ancient Christian ways of focusing the holy longing, of pursuing peace. We might call those paths, respectively, the path of justice and the path of contemplation. First, the path of justice. Peace was a common word in the time of the Gospels. Politicians often proclaimed the Pax Romana. Rome built its rule as the end of war. No one dared challenge the might of the Roman military. But what Rome called peace was awful for Rome's subjects. Folks like the disciples, off in the hinterlands of the empire, Fisherfolk, shepherds, craftspeople, they had to pay exorbitant taxes to keep up the armies. And they were treated as less than citizens. Their lives were seen as expendable. They had no vote. Romans might have talked of peace, but the people experienced it as repression. When I was an undergraduate at the University of San Diego, a new beautiful building opened on the west end of campus, beautiful views out over the Pacific Ocean. It was a whole new graduate school. I remember the day that they unveiled the sign in front. I was a theology major, and really, I'm a one-trick pony. I was majoring in theology even as an undergrad. I remember the week of the opening, one of my professors, Maria Pilar Aquino, premier voice in Latin American feminist liberation theology, In class, she was spitting nails with anger about the opening. The name of the school carved in stone was the Institute for Peace and Justice. 
She was furious. They got it backward, she said. You can't have peace before justice. Without justice, there is no peace, no matter what you call it. Think of the chants that we've heard so often in the streets of St. Louis these last five years. If we don't get no justice, then you don't get no peace. In his speech accepting the Nobel Prize, Dr. King famously prophesied, we will not build a peaceful world by following a negative path. Peace is not negative. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of justice. As St. Oscar Romero, the martyred bishop of El Salvador, preached, peace is not the silence of cemeteries. Peace is not the silent result of violent repression. Peace is the generous, tranquil contribution of all to the good of all. Peace is dynamism. Peace is generosity. It is right and it is duty. The path of justice since the times of the early church has been a defining path for the Christian understanding of peace. The path focuses on the, so-called, on the tension between the so-called peace the world gives and the peace of Christ. To be a Christian peacemaker is to put justice first, not to try to include it as an afterthought. The peace of Christ often lights a fire in the hearts of Christians, pushes them out into the streets, to the legislature, to the governor's office, and when that fails, to the courthouse. Christians long for, agitate for, work for a different peace than what the world offers. The second path to peace is interrelated with the first. We'll call this the path of contemplation. I quoted El Salvador's sainted Archbishop Oscar Romero a moment ago. In addition to his tireless work for justice, his pleas to the military to stop the repression, his visits to the poor farmers, to the women and children who were victims of massacre, in addition to all his work for justice, Romero was famed for his practice of prayer. It was said that he spent an hour each day in quiet contemplation. When you visit Romero's little home, a three-room house at a cancer hospital that he chose over the archbishop's palace in the capital, You can see the rosary beads that Romero wore out by praying so often. The beads have little cavities from all the times they passed through his fingers. There's a story that during a Q&A with the archbishop, someone once asked Romero, with all that is going on, with the death threats and the political organizing and the preaching, with all the busyness as bishop, how do you find time to pray for an hour a day? Unblinking, Romero answered, on the busy days, on the anxious days, I need two hours. Contemplation isn't about navel-gazing. Prayer, meditation, scripture reading, silence, they aren't meant to be self-centered activities. Now, they can become problematic. Any aspiring contemplative can tell you one of the main thoughts you need to let go of in approaching silent prayer goes something like this. Gosh, I'm doing so well sitting on this cushion right now. Aren't I so spiritual? I'm so much more spiritual than my friends. The contemplative has to let go of that thought 
because it won't lead to the peace of Christ. Self-aggrandizement never does. Sometimes Christians committed to justice dismiss contemplation, prayer, all that quiet as a waste of time. But the point of silence, the hope of quiet prayer for Christians pursuing peace is less about the moments spent in prayer than the rest of the moments of the day. Making room for quiet, for calm, for rest, to be alone with God, it turns out to be important for our long-term health. (coughs) Folks committed to justice can wear themselves out quickly. Without quiet, we lose perspective. This is a debt that accumulates. We often forget to turn off the radio. If we forget to turn it off, If we spend every free moment scrolling through the news feed, constantly angered by some new indignity, if we don't put it all down regularly and find some time for silence, we can build a debt. If we stay angry at the news, at the political leaders, at the state of the world, if we stay in that place all the time, if we don't also make room for quiet, for prayer, for time with God, for peace, we will pay a price. Likewise, if we don't put down our work every once in a while, if our minds are constantly occupied by budgets and deadlines and charts and the next project, if we don't lay it all aside from time to time, we will pay a price. We'll sleep less. We will become less ourselves. The Episcopal priest and Buddhist teacher Alan Watts said famously, Humanity suffers only because they take seriously what the gods have made for fun. Even in the midst of the fight, even when the stakes are high, especially when the stakes are high, we need perspective. We need space for laughter, for play. We need to make time for rest, to pray, to find silence, to reconnect to receive the gift of peace. Peace I leave you, my own peace I give you. I give to you not as the world gives. Do we know what Jesus means by the word peace? How do we define the word? How do we know it? I talked about two paths, but that metaphor is a bit deceptive. You can't really walk on one and not the other. If you want peace, work for justice. But if you don't take a break every once in a while, if you don't find silence and solace, you will burn out. Both paths lead us gently toward a new sort of peace. As you walk out of church today, take a look at the old sign in our front lawn. You'll see the protest chant I mentioned before, but rewritten. I didn't come up with the rewrite. I'm sure I saw it on a bumper sticker somewhere. No justice, no peace. It's been written K-N-O-W, no justice. K-N-O-W, no peace. Sometimes the bumper sticker definition is all you need. No justice, no peace. Know the gift Christ gives, not as the world gives. Amen.